So good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the session Hunger, Water as Life. Uh, uh, the theme of our session today is Food and Water, Resources for Life. So I have uh, the honor to present you three distinguished speakers. First one uh, is Sadavi Bhagawati Saraswati, Secretary General of the Global Interfaith Wash Alliance. Then Dinesh Suna, Coordinator of the Ecumenical Water Network World Council of Churches and Bernard Timothy Apu, missionary chaplain, Asian Rural Institute. So their biographies and the, what they are doing, you may find also in the material which uh, you found already in your bags. And without further ado, I will give the floor to our first speaker. Sadvi, please, uh, we all have more or less like 15 to maximum 20 minutes. The shorter, the better. So uh, it is up to you how you want to continue. So please, the floor is yours. Now I have a PowerPoint presentation. Is there someone who's going to start that? Yeah, it's on, it's on your computer up there. Thank you. So first of all, it's such a great 
great, great honor to be here and to be invited to speak on water and food. When you think about anything that we care about in the world, particularly with regard to issues of development, issues of peace. So when we speak about children, or we speak about women, or we speak about education, whatever aspect we speak about, water and food underlie everything. With no water, obviously, we can't have food. But water itself is life. And so without any water, we cannot have life. So when we're here or when we are in any of the different environments that we find ourselves in, discussing aspects of development, aspects of working to serve the world in so many different ways, working on violence, working on refugees, regardless of what we are focused on, what we have found coming from the perspective of a spiritual organization, a religious organization, who have been working in the field of humanitarian programs for decades, we finally realized that water actually underscored everything. And that without working on water, our work on education, our work on healthcare, our work for children, our work for women, our work for the environment, none of it mattered because without water, Nothing could exist, nothing could thrive, no one could be healthy. And the tragedy of all of that is that it is water, and it is the situation of water on Earth that is getting more and more drastic and more and more dire every day. So we're now in a situation where three-quarters of the world is becoming desert. By 2025, which is basically today, half of the world will be living in water-stressed areas. By the United Nations statistics, by 2040, the world will have about half the water it needs. India is on course to have that happen by 2030, which is basically tomorrow. Now, when we talk about having half the water we need, as anyone who works in development and equality understands, what that doesn't mean is that everyone's gonna get a glass of water 50% of the time they need it. What it means is that many people with access and luxury to continue to buy what they need will have full access and a very terrifying percentage of people will have no access to water at all, which again, going back to how I began, whatever we care about, care about children, care about women, care about education, care about the environment, care about health, well, without water, none of it can happen. And so when we are in these situations that are literally today and tomorrow, 2025, 2030, this is something that we've realized is absolutely essential for us to look at. So I just gave you that information, but only one point to add to it, since I know we're speaking a lot about refugees. And again, these are UN statistics, is that by 2040, we could have up to 700 million water refugees. So anyone working in the fields of what do we do with refugees, 
again, with regard to rights, with regard to health, with regard to education, with regard to safety and security, rather than only addressing the situations that have already arisen, here's a situation that we know in advance. This is what's going to happen. This is where we're going. So rather than only saying, well, okay, let's work with the refugees we currently have, and when these people all show up, we'll then convene conferences and figure out what to do with them. Rather than that, because there won't be conferences because we won't have water to drink, we can actually work today to prevent having so many refugees due to water. So one of the reasons that when you talk to most people about water and what's going on with water, tragically, people don't really know a lot of the statistics. And one of the main major causes of our water situation today is actually agriculture. So the green here is municipalities. A lot of people think, oh, the cities. The red here is industries, and blue here is agriculture. This is water extraction, water withdrawal. In India, from the Ganga River, 90% of that water is being diverted for agriculture. From the Yamuna River, about 97% of that water is being pulled out of the riverbeds for agriculture, which, on a very quick religious divert divergent topic for just a moment, the Yamuna River and the Ganga River are sacred rivers. And we've gotten ourselves into a situation where, for example, with the Yamuna, long before the river flows through Vrindavan, which is this very, very holy city, where people go to have sacred baths, actually there's no Yamuna water left in the riverbed of the Yamuna. The water is diverted in Haryana before getting to Delhi. And then the riverbed is filled with Delhi sewage. So in areas of Vrindavan, Mathura, where the world's Hindu devotees, the world's devotees of Krishna are going to have a bath, to pray, to sip this water, what they're actually sipping is Delhi sewage. And we'll come back when we speak about recommendations to what is wrong with agriculture, because obviously we have to feed people. So the answer is not, oh, we have to stop feeding people and leave the water in the riverbed. But the issue is, how is the way we're doing agriculture creating a situation where we don't have water in our rivers? And just the last point with regard to this is when we end up, and this is not in the area of policy recommendations that came at the end, but nonetheless, I'm going to just call it out for you now in this moment, is in our ministries and our governments, our water ministry is separate from our food ministry. And so when our agriculture ministry is pulling water out of Ganga and out of Yamuna to grow food that is not food that should be grown in those particular areas, they're not in communication with the water ministries, who then are ending up with a situation where there's no water in the rivers, or the water has been filled with sewage. And so the pollution, the actual amount and the actual percentage, the dilution of the bacteria 
in the rivers is perilous to people's health. And so many people are suffering and dying due to the pollution in the rivers, which if the water volume were more, if it weren't being pulled out of the rivers, even if we continue to dump all our sewage in, even if we continue to dump all our waste in, even if nothing were changed with regard to waste management, we still would have a better situation because the water dilution would be better. But because we're pulling all the water out and dumping all the sewage in, we're in this lose-lose situation. Okay, so obviously our world population is also increasing. No need to talk about this, except it adds to the problem of less water, more people, therefore fewer people with access to water. So we speak about faith can move mountains. And I've just laid before you in a few minutes where we stand today, which is important because what we have found is so few people realize the direness of our situation with regard to water. So we turn to faith, and what we know as we say, faith can move mountains, but we're using it, and we're using it effectively, and it can be used even more effectively to move the minds, the thoughts, the values, and therefore the behaviors of the people on Earth. And that's really what's required to address our water and food situations. So you don't need me to tell you the power of faith. We will skip over that one. So our Global Interfaith WASH Alliance was launched by UNICEF at UNICEF headquarters in 2013. What we realized is rather than working only from the perspective of a Hindu religious organization, when we saw this power that faith has to change people, Water is something that doesn't discriminate. Diarrhea doesn't discriminate. Pollution doesn't discriminate. That same river irrigates the farms of Hindus and Muslims and Christians and Sikhs and Jews and the rich and the poor and high caste and low caste. And so the problems impact everyone. And so we brought together leaders from all of the major traditions together to work for water, sanitation, and hygiene. So I'm going to move quickly through some slides. They had asked me to give a background a bit on our organization. So I've got some slides that I'm going to move quickly on because I want to come to the actual policy recommendations, which to me feels more important. But nonetheless, keeping in line with the request of a little bit of background. So our organization is really committed to working on both what we call the grand level and the ground level. And the ground level is this massive stages, massive impact, massive behavior change communication, massive advocacy, reaching out to enormous numbers of people, whether actually on live stages or through TV, reaching out through high-level leaders, political leaders, national leaders, celebrity leaders, et cetera, et cetera, to really change how people think and therefore how they behave. 
So on the, on the ground level, though, is the work of implementation. And it's equally important to us to walk the talk as to talk the talk. And so with the awareness that as one NGO, we don't have the power that the government has, or the United Nations has, or the World Bank has, that's where we're doing all of the grand level work. But nonetheless, as a religious organization, it's essential that we use our time and our energy and our resources to actually walk the talk as well. And so you can see here we have uh, part of our Women for Wash program, women becoming actually masons building toilets. This is just moments with different religion, different, sorry, different world leaders uh, speaking about aspects of water and aspects of sanitation and hygiene, but primarily aspects of water. So this is with India's leaders. And just to take a moment here, um, this woman is the speaker of the parliament, the Indian president, I assume people will recognize. Hopefully, that's our president. That woman is the speaker of the parliament. That's the vice president. You can see we're showing him a toilet cafe. We're really working to make toilets part of something that people realize are our friends. And to remove the stigma around toilets and defecation, thereby working for sanitation, but also working for issues of caste system inequality, which I won't go into here, but that's an aspect of the work with toilets. So these are high-level cabinet ministers. That's Rajnath Singh. That's Nitin Gadkari. Um, that's Ramesh Pokhariyal. They're all cabinet ministers in the current government and former government as well, the vice president. So this, this was a program that we had done in Leh Ladakh, a program on water. And this was just that the prime minister had actually tweeted about it six times that day. Uh, giving his praise and appreciation for the work of bringing faith leaders together for water in this program of Leh Ladakh. Again, in the center here with the religious leaders is Narendra Singh Tamar, a cabinet minister. This is our chief minister of Uttarakhand, chief minister of Uttar Pradesh. Again, our chief minister here. This is Dr. Harshvardhan, another cabinet minister. So this is just to show the level of advocacy work that we are doing with the governments. This is more of the grand level advocacy programs and behavior change communication programs. We are using as much as we can massive events that are already taking place, like the Kumbh Melas, where you've got tens of millions or hundreds of millions. The recent Kumbh Mela had 250 million people to harness the power of the masses where they already are and where they're coming together with faith, expecting to be transformed by faith leaders. And so rather than just talking to them about attaining liberation, attaining moksha, their next life, removing you know, the chains of karma, we're talking to them about creating heaven right here, right now, on earth, in this body, and not just for ourselves, but for our global family. 
So very quickly on the ground level, these are just some of the different programs that we're doing. We have a program called Wash on Wheels, which is a moving entertainment and education center on a truck that has gone through many of the states of India and actually is one of the main organizations that made the state of Bihar ODF. The government of Bihar said that we were one of their main, main partners in making the state ODF. So our world toilet, I'm sorry? Oh, so sorry, thank you. Open defecation free, sorry. The World Toilet College that we are running, water schools bringing programs of water to young children. The Gunga River Institute is working for research and then implementation of aspects on the Gunga River and other rivers. Women for Wash, again, empowering them to be community leaders, change makers. We have a term, we call it Swachatha Kranthakadis, which are the clean revolutionaries, but actually also getting them to become masons and build the toilets. This is work with children. I've only got a few minutes left, so I want to switch through all of this work on the ground. So this is just quickly, you can read some of the numerical impact of some of the programs that we have been running that actually had proper data collection. And what you can see is that the impact on people is up at almost 100%. It's things like 97% of the people who were spoken to, who were reached, were impacted, were impacted positively, remember what they were told, and want to implement those changes. Now, with just the last couple of minutes, the, the crux of what I wanted to address. So number one. For the, for the policy leaders, number one is really recognize and respect and collaborate with the power of faith. Yes, religion can be a cause of trouble, we know that, but what we also know is that when religion becomes a cause for trouble is when religion is not being true to itself. And so when religion is being true to itself, it is actually a source of not only inspiration and upliftment, but it's actually a source of that which helps better our world and better all of the people in it. So for policymakers to really reach out to religious leaders, religious actors, faith-based organizations, everyone inspired by faith to do better for the world, we are your allies. Okay, so there are, there's a lot of technologies. This has to do with rainwater harvesting and what we've seen in India, and I don't have time to go into all of the science of this, but what we've seen that I'll show you in the next slide is the miraculous power of harvesting the rain properly. And a lot of it has to do with development. A lot of it has to do with where our focus is. And so, for example, if we are keeping our land covered with greenery, if we're keeping it cultivatable, when it rains, 
even aside from doing the rainwater harvesting, even aside from all of the actual techniques, the land itself absorbs the water. The dilemma with land that has been covered with cement and asphalt is when the rain falls on it, it's gone, it's wasted. It either runs off or it's evaporated. But we have absolutely none of God's intended benefit of the rain. And so we're not anti-cement or anti-asphalt, but when Again, when we're thinking about policy and development, it's really important to understand that green development involves not just buildings that happen to be eco-friendly as well, but in the planning of which land are we removing the green cover from, and we are covering with cement, covering with asphalt. One example in Maharashtra, you can see this is what the land used to look like. Maharashtra is a state, a very large state. It's the state that Mumbai is in, in the central part of India. And this is what it looked like. 350 villages came together, and they used only natural means, very low-tech needs, I mean, low-tech means of check dams, of rainwater harvesting, of all of the different things that I had just listed on the previous screen. And in 45 days, they gave themselves the capacity to store, that is, 86 billion liters of water capacity. And so when it rains, now this is what the land looks like. So, and of course, in addition to greenery, what you end up with is land that farmers can actually use to grow things on. So not only do we have more oxygen and more coolness, but we act in more water, but we actually have food. Yeah, the amount of water that they have now been able to save is enough to circle the earth 1.24 times with a thousand liter water tankers. So think about that amount of water. This is one area of one state of one country implementing this one technique. Water saving irrigation as well. Typically, the problem with the typical means of irrigation now with the bore wells and the tube wells is that it floods our land. When we're using land to grow things that require a lot of water and we're using those forms of irrigation, what ends up happening is a lot of the water gets wasted and then, of course, gets evaporated up and is not being held either in the soil or in the reservoirs. So just more conscious and skillful forms of irrigation, realizing that a tragic percentage of the cities in the world have barely any groundwater left, and we're going to be in a groundwater crisis before we know it. Sustainable water footprints. Now, this is something that is really an injunction of religious world, spiritual world, but it also needs to be something from a policy standpoint in education, in media, that we let people know. I mean, we are, we are strict and ardent vegetarians. And when I share statistics with people, people are shocked. Most people have no idea. Now, that doesn't mean that we're expecting governments to come out and say, thou shalt become vegan. But what it means is at least educate people 
at least help people understand the impact. Because what I have found is that when you give people the information and the knowledge, they make the right decisions. And so just very, very quickly, what we know is that one kg of beef requires about 16,000 liters of water. In American numbers, we say a pound of beef, 16 gallons of water. So it's an incredible, incredible amount of water. Um, and food, and requires, sorry, 16 pounds of grain to go into the pound of beef. Sorry, we're mixing water and food. So a pound of beef requires 16 pounds of grain. So it's a 1 to 16 ratio and 16,000 liters of water, which to just put in perspective for one moment, the amount of water that you use in bathing for six months, if you bathe every day, is the amount of water that goes into one meal of beef, which means every time you eat beef, if you're concerned about water, you literally would have to refrain from bathing for six months. Chicken is about a third, so you'd have to go about two months without bathing. Now, again, we're not saying that governments need to come out and say, you must become vegetarians. But where we have taxes on cigarettes as a luxury, for example, why not have taxes on meat? Okay. We're not saying to make it illegal, but why not help people understand the negative impact? Cigarettes are harmful for your health. Eating meat is harmful for our planet. So again, just quickly with time, I'm going to just let you all read these without sharing them all with you. It's just a few facts on the water usage for our daily life. Now, spirituality reminds us, live simply so that others can simply live. The religions of the world really emphasize a, a purity and a simplicity of the heart. And if we can take that into action of recognizing that all of those with whom we share this planet are our sisters and brothers, it'll make an enormous difference. And that's something that the governments can work with education, with policy, with media. Lastly, I'm trying to think of how to do this in 30 seconds. Okay, so lastly, we know that trees absorb carbon dioxide and emit oxygen. But the absorption of carbon dioxide, it's really important to realize when they absorb it, it doesn't disappear. They absorb it and push it into the earth. When those trees are cut down, the carbon emission of cutting trees is not just that typically the forests get burned and therefore we have the carbon from that. It's actually that the carbon that was being held in the ground by the trees, by the greenery, now gets emitted when they get cut. And so if we can aim for green development, if we can really recognize the impact of cutting even one tree, and with farming, what we know is that if at the end of a harvest, if that last harvest, instead of having all of the extras being pulled out of the ground, clear cut, and then burned, if that last crop 
can be allowed to actually stay and dry and then cover the ground. All of the carbon stays in the ground. And then you end up with a sponge as well that absorbs all of the rainwater. So these are just some recommendations for policies that governments and other leaders can bring into their world. And yes, together it can be done, and together we must do it. Whether we come at this from the perspective of religion and spirituality or the perspective of government and policy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sadawi, for this wonderful presentation and really taking us all in the water system and uh, giving us idea what we should do and uh, how we should uh, go forward. So I think, really, I believe that we all learn a lot from this uh, presentation and uh, you also gave us ideas of what we are not supposed to do or what we are uh, at least supposed to try not to do in our future endeavors uh, in order to help um, uh, having a water for everybody and avoiding to have 700 million people running away and becoming a refugee because of the water issues. So we all have responsibility and as you said, uh, together we can do much more uh, concerning these issues. Okay, uh, uh, the next speaker is uh, Dinesh, so the floor is yours. So 20 minutes as well. So thank you very much. Um, I think uh, Sadviji has already uh, said a lot that I wanted to also share, uh, share so that'll save some time. Uh, so basically, as the theme is around uh, ending hunger and uh, looking at water as uh, life, um, I would uh, say what at the World Council of Churches we are doing. Just to give you a little intro about the WCC, or the World Council of Churches, uh, it's a global fellowship of uh, around 350 churches in about 120 countries. Uh, a little over 500 million people that uh, are members are affiliated to the World Council of Churches, and uh, the headquarters are based in Geneva. Um, very quickly to share, uh, what I'm going to talk about uh, is we do work on ecological justice, on water justice, and food justice. Particularly, my responsibility is on uh, water justice. I'm focusing on the issue of justice because that is what we bring as a faith uh, uh, organization, the issue of justice to relate with all these three areas. Um, so at the Ecumenical Water Network, we strongly believe that water is a gift of God and it is a public good and therefore we must not privatize this life-giving resource, and we believe that water is a fundamental human right. Even though in 2010, only in 2010, uh, United Nations recognized water and sanitation as human rights, uh, even though 1948 we had the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, so 
still it is not a reality in many countries. So with this affirmation, we try to raise awareness among the constituencies. I mentioned about this 500 million people that we represent. Uh, we also try to bring in the prophetic voice where it be it government or private corporations, if we have to challenge, we do have to challenge them. Uh, and then promote a fair and ecologically just distribution of these resources. Uh, you, we all know about the water facts. Just to let you know, even though two-thirds of Earth is covered with water, only 3% is fresh water. And of that 3%, only 0.3% is found in all the rivers and the lakes around the world. Only 0.3%. So it's such a scarce resource. And yet, we strongly believe that the global water crisis is not only because of the physical scarcity of water, but because of an unequal distribution of this resource. So as a matter of fact, the statistic says that uh, almost one third of world's population do not have access to safely managed drinking water. That means you open the tap and the safe water comes through it. It's not a reality for 2.1 billion people. And two thirds of world's population, that is 4.5 billion people, do not have access to an adequate sanitation facility. That means they don't have an access to a toilet like you and I have. And here in Japan, you have all sorts of high-tech toilets that I am amazed to see. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, the last year, in the United Nations High-Level Political Forum, uh, made an assessment of goal number six, SDG, which is about drinking water and sanitation for all by 2030. And the assessment report says that the world is off the track, that it will not be able to achieve by 2030. Um, so what do we do is we two levels, engagement with the churches, which are our primary constituency, and uh, awareness building, capacity building, and then we try to do advocacy with the United Nations through these constituencies. Uh, one such engagement is we have during the Lenten period within the Christian calendar, where uh, it starts from the, something like an Ash Wednesday, if you are a Christian you would know, and then it would end by end of Good Friday, and by the time Easter, you have this 40 days in the English calendar. The Orthodox uh, calendar would be slightly different. However, the seven weeks for water is a way to talk to the churches and bringing about the knowledge and information about water. And how do we create awareness and do a, a sustained campaign? Because the World Water Day always falls during the Lenten period of the English, uh, Christian calendar, 22nd of March. Uh, these are some pictures where we raise the issue of water in Palestine. It becomes such a big issue. This is the general secretary of the WCC uh, when he was speaking about the issue of Palestinian water crisis. Um, the Israeli government had come very strongly attacking us because uh, we raised some key issues because the uh, conflict there is also around water. Uh, this Lenten campaign goes to Africa in one year and in Latin America in another, and this year it was in Asia. So there are different um, uh, moments. Uh, you could see some pictures here. Now, very quickly, in the interest of time, I would try to re-emphasize what Sadhviji was also mentioning, that the religious bodies are basically uh, the drivers of change. Uh, we know that about 80% of world's population identify themselves with some or other uh, faith. And therefore, uh, they also, the religious leader has a very strong influence over their followers. And therefore, what they say or what they do can make a big impact. 
And uh, therefore, the government, uh, uh, while, while planning different schemes and provisions, must take the religious leader into confidence so that what they plan can also be uh, successful because the community is with the uh, religious leaders, basically. Uh, you know, it was also very easy at the uh, WCC level to talk about water because water is mentioned more than 600 times in the Bible, for example. More than the word Jesus, the water is written in the Bible more often. So it was easy to talk about uh, water, but rather difficult to talk about sanitation because almost no mention of it in the Bible for the Christian community. Uh, so we had to introduce something like a church hymn to be, we composed a church hymn to be sang in the churches on the topic of toilets. And because the World Toilet Day is on the 19th of uh, November, and uh, so far we never received any objections uh, from the churches when they wrote, nobody complained about it. Uh, we have, from other faiths as well, at the World Water Week, we had last year invited uh, uh, the Imam, uh, the, the Grand Imam of. Uh, Jordan could not come, but the Mufti, Mufti of Amman, he could come and then talk about the Blue Mosque project where the use of recycled water in the mosques, uh, he issued a fatwa that it is okay to do that. And uh, in a water-scarce country or a region, people may tend to use precious water for religious rituals where there is not enough water to drink. Um, even the first responders as faith communities are the president of the Ecumenical Water Network, a bishop of Sierra Leone, talked about how the religious bodies influenced uh, the prevention of Ebola in Sierra Leone and uh, um, Liberia and other countries. Now, very quickly now, I would say about three initiatives that we uh, do at the World Council of Churches. Number one is blue communities. Uh, number two is Ten Commandments. Uh, for of food, and number three, it churches roadmap for eco justice. Now, what is blue community? Is very simple. That uh, a community which respects water as a human right. Number two, promote public control over water and say no to privatization of water. And number three, say no to bottled water, because this is something you may not know yet that every minute. Globally, we produce one million plastic bottles every minute. And uh, that is the level that by 2050, there would be more plastics floating in the ocean than fishes. So these are the scary statistics. And uh, it's not easy also. It is being sold up to 2,000 times more expensive than tap water. Yesterday, uh, Elizabeth and we were having dinner, and somebody ordered a bottle of water in this hotel and the restaurant, and it was like 18 euro for a bottle of water. <laughs> so imagine how much profit they are minting, the bottled water industries. Uh, this is our general secretary receiving the certificate uh, of a blue community that the World Council of Churches, we have become a blue community now, and therefore we do not uh, uh, entertain any plastic uh, bottles or bottled water per se. These are the bottles all the staff of uh, 300 staff at the WCC use with their names printed on it reusable bottles. We have also passed it on to other spiritual leaders. The Anglican um, church head, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was visiting the World Council of Churches, and we gave him a gift 
this ordinary glass water bottle to reuse and uh, refill uh, and, and avoid plastic bottles. And this is the ecumenical patriarch, uh, Bartholomew, uh, the, one of the head of the Orthodox churches. And he is known as Green Patriarch because of his ecological commitment. And he was gifted also one as our commitment. And finally, the Pope Francis visited us last year. And uh, uh, the General Secretary of World Council of Churches gave him this innocuous kind of very, very you know, ordinary water bottle uh, to the Pope. And you could see the delight, the happiness in the face of the Pope that he was gifted <laughs> this ordinary looking water bottle, but with a very deep meaning. Cities and countries are also becoming blue communities. And I'll quickly now run something to talk about the food, water, and health, and climate change, how these nexus works. Uh, over the lunch, we were talking about uh, how uh, every day globally about 1,500 children die because of uh, diarrhea. And uh, basically, uh, contaminated water is one of these source. Nobody talks about it. If tomorrow Al-Qaeda or another terrorist organization blow up uh, 100 children, it becomes a big issue. But every day, 1,500 children are dying, and nobody is talking about it. So this is something what we could do. And children missing school days because of they have to walk miles for fetching water, or because of sanitation or hygienic facilities not being there in the schools, uh, young girls miss out because of uh, the, their uh, physiological cycles um, and finally become school dropouts. Now, Sadviji mentioned about this. This is very important, and therefore I want to underline very quickly is we, you know, you and I are responsible for only 10% of freshwater use. 90% is kind of beyond our control because, as she said, 70% of freshwater is used up for agriculture and food production. You and I don't really go to the farm, uh, farm and produce food, but we consume. So indirectly, we are responsible for 70% of freshwater use. 20% is for the energy generations and industries purpose, and only 10% for drinking, sanitation, bathing, washing your car, and even kitchen garden. Okay. So why only focus on leaking taps or taking shorter showers and all, but Focus more on the larger water footprint, as she mentioned, that 70% uh, goes on food production. And one third of that food production, you know, the food gets wasted. So that much of water is also wasted. Uh, she also already showed, I don't want to show more, but then you can read for yourself how much of virtual water is in it. Like a cup of coffee has 140 liters of water in it or a kilogram of beef has about 15 to 16,000 liters of virtual water. And therefore, by reducing meat consumption, uh, we could probably help saving a lot of water, as Sadhviji was mentioning. Uh, quickly, to save time, today, more than 800 million people do not have uh, uh, adequate food, and therefore, they probably are suffering from the problem of hunger. So what can we do as a people of faith to overcome hunger and its root causes? Uh, so the World Council of Churches, uh, while we became a blue community, we also created something called for the, because our constituencies are the Christians, basically, uh, we decide, uh, created something called 10 commandments in the Bible. So 10 commandments for food. So what are these 10 commandments? Very quickly that give thanks for the food that we eat. We cannot take it for granted because 820 million people do not have access to food. 
Now, eat the food which is grown as close as, close as possible where, do, where you live. That means, uh, if, uh, why this 15,000 liters of water in a kilogram of meat? Because probably the meat is from the calf, or the calf was born in Argentina, raised after two years, taken to slaughterhouse, packed, and the meat was packed and shipped or flown or whatever, came to Europe. And that's how all the water footprints. So we should try to eat locally grown food. Strive for all people to have knowledge about uh, and access to affordable and nutritious food. What we eat must also be nutritious. Eat mindfully and in moderation. Do not waste food. One third of the food produced globally is wasted. Uh, be grateful to those who grow and prepare food for our table. Support fair wages for farm workers. Reduce environmental damage of land, water, and air from food production and the food system. Protect the biodiversity, seeds, soil, ecosystems, etc. And finally, rejoice and share the sacred gift of food with all. We have an explanation on each of these items. So you can Google 10 commandments of food, and you would get all these details. Now, a little bit about some of the advocacy work that also we do with the UN bodies. Uh, but I think uh, I'm looking at the time, uh, three, four minutes left. So quickly, the third point is the roadmap for eco-justice. And this is something we released. And a very unfortunate event I want to share that a colleague of mine who was working on this one was going to present it at the UN Environment Program, um, General Assembly in Nairobi in March. And you know the Ethiopian Airlines crashed, and my colleague uh, was in that plane. And uh, he obviously died uh, from Austria. And, uh, but it's a tribute of him that we have this document now. You can Google it also, uh, Church's Roadmap to Eco-Justice. So basically, uh, living in accordance with the covenant of God and creation. Uh, these are, there are five points. Then uh, uh, number two is about renewable energy and climate protection. Uh, another third section is just and sustainable consumption. Uh, fourth is economies of life, where we develop alternative models of economy, which doesn't make the rich richer and the poor poorer, but more sustainable economies. And finally, about uh, networking and collaborating with all other actors. So um, now quickly about the one word about the SDGs. You know, the goal number two deals with hunger. Goal number six deals with water and sanitation. So uh, last year, I mentioned that goal number six was reviewed. And uh, this is the one uh, Professor Stephen Unulbrook from the UNESCO. He is the uh, author of that report. And he basically mentioned that the world is off the track to achieve this goal. But so much of work is done by faith communities, and the there is no mention, the no word of faith communities mentioned in his report. So we invited him in a WCC event in New York, as you can see, and we challenged him why you have not included the faith community's contribution. But now he says, I was not aware, but now I am. And in the next report, there will be some mention of the faith communities. And this is the special rapporteur of the UN who was also present uh, in the meeting. Now, in this kind of another event at the World Water Week in Stockholm, we do every year on water and faith with Cardinal Turkson there. And we have many other faith leaders uh, present who talked about the issue of water and faith. And every year we do this, uh, and including this year, we would talk about uh, how faith communities are changing lives 
so finally, uh, two, three recommendations that uh, this G20 summit must look into some of these areas that uh, they must try to promote blue communities. Um, if you go to an airport uh, in Geneva while I was coming, I always carry a bottle of water which I can refill. Most airports have uh, some facilities to refill. In Geneva or in Switzerland, mostly you don't find them because the bottled water nexus is so strong and you have to pay about four or five dollars to buy a half liter of bottle and therefore they do not provide facilities to fill. Even if there are toilets, the water is a little warm. That means it's not so safe to drink. So we want to promote these blue communities that governments must uh, try to keep this public, respect human right to water, and say ban this bottled water, which is a huge menace. And have stricter rules to reinforce, uh, reduce, reuse, and recycles. Promote the concepts of the Ten Commandments. And uh, finally, uh, have the faith communities on board, take them into confidence while planning uh, their plans. As the Prime Minister, former Prime Minister of Ireland was saying in the morning, we have a business to do, but when you do the business, keep the faith communities in mind. So this is where I would stop. Thank you very much. If you want to know more information, some details here, including this presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dinesh, for this uh, very extensive um, presentation and for the all work that uh, World Council of Churches is doing on behalf of uh, so many millions of Christians. Uh, in order to preserve the water for the present and future generations and so on. So all the material is available on the World Council of Churches also website, so uh, one could consult and thank you so much for these recommendations because later on we'll also sit and maybe try to draft some recommendations for the G20 uh, governments uh, to be included from this summit. So, and we turn to our last speaker for this session, Bernard, the floor is yours. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Reverend Bernard Timothy Apau. I am from Ghana, and um, I've been in Japan for 12 years now. So I'm going to talk locally, okay? Uh, we all believe that water and life cannot be separated. And water is indispensable for life. And I think we are all aware uh, about the Sustainable Development Goal, number six, that my colleagues have already talked about it. And it, the indication was clear, water for all, 2030. However, I wonder if this uh, wonder, wonderful goal can be achieved. I am saying this because as we are gathered here, over billions of people are living without clean and portable water. And even if the water is there, how can we guarantee that it's clean or safe? Now, all this is happening because of our human behavior towards the nature and uh, particularly the special gift from God, which is water. The goal can be achieved when uh, each one of us here, particularly the religious people, decided to step up and support 
the noble idea, water for all, as the World Council of Churches is doing. I'm very happy to hear about that. This idea has been supposed to be preached in the churches and the mosques. I believe that if we have war, I'm talking as an African, because Africans are fighting against each other, and many people praise also there's a war. But if you have any war, I think it should be a war that is uh, not against ourselves, but I think we need strong men and women to stand up against countries that are not willing to support the idea of fighting against the global warming. We need to fight with them. Good and quality water is very essential to human health. And we should not forget livestock and other animals, as my sister mentioned, the animal, animal uh, uh, family. It is essential when it comes to our environment also, the ecosystem, and then food security. We often talk about sustainable agriculture, but I think without enough water, we cannot achieve that uh, concept of sustainable agriculture. And let me talk a little bit about my institution. The Asian Rural Institute, as a leader's training center, we are in Nasu Shiobara city, and uh, we have a materials here, so if you are happy, uh, you want to get, you can get from here. Um, our major emphasis is on servant leadership and sustainable agriculture, organic way of farming. We are trying to inculcate into our participants, or we call them participants, we don't call them students, because we also think that they are leaders in the rural areas, and they also have an idea to share with us. So there's no, uh, should no be barrier that a lecturer will come and talk and talk and talk and go. We want them to participate. So we call them participants, and I was one of them before becoming a staff member there. We often talk about uh, that food and life cannot be separated. So our founder, Quell a world that we cannot find it in dictionary, food, life. However, I think that we need to start to turn our focus on water for life and develop a new concept, which I call water life. Without availability of water, we cannot achieve sustainable agriculture. Food life as we believe in ARI, I also believe that water and life cannot be separated. Because for three, uh, 13 years that I've been staying in Nasu Shobara on this national, this year is a year that I hear from the farmers around us crying for lack of water. And uh, many of them dug wells to feed their paddies. You know, rice is one of the best food in Japan. If you don't know how to do, eat rice, you find it very difficult to stay in Japan. So it's very, very important for us. We, we are not doing any particular water-saving activities in ARI, except 
the regular habit that we always say to people, save water, save water. But I think we should start some concrete action after this, uh, this uh, forum. And we need to talk about collecting of uh, rainwater, as uh, you mentioned. And uh, we have uh, agricultural tools. We wash them every day. We have uh, cars that uh, people have given to us. We wash them every day. So I think we can at least uh, harvest water to wash cars and uh, wash our tools. And uh, we also uh, remember once again that uh, maybe the Japanese people here will be aware of that. This Nasuno, in uh, four, four, 400 kilometers of Nasu, Na, Nasuno Gara region, was once a vast uncultivated plain land because of lack of water. And uh, our ancestors, sometimes I say our, I'm not Japanese, but. <laughs> The, 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 the people in the Nasu uh, uh, Shobara area decided to make a canal and bring water for the place so that people can do agriculture. So we are now living in a very fertile land, but because of the ancestors who devoted their time to bring water to there. And it's about 150, 150 years ago. And one of the most important gifts from God is water. And we have, we have to be a good stewards towards maintaining our water bodies. There are some sources which indicate that over 2.1 billion people are living without water in their homes. And more than, now I just have an, a new uh, statistic that 1,500 children are dying uh, every day uh, globally from diarrhea, which is the link of unsafe drinking water. And about 80% of the people who have no access to save, to save and unprotected water sources are living in the rural areas. So for example, in Ghana, I'm from Ghana, my government for the past three years has waged a war against what we call illegal mining, which is destroying our water bodies. The president is working very hard to secure the SDG goal number six. And everywhere I go, I recommend my president, he need international support. Chinese people are coming and doing all kinds of mining. And I think we need international support to help us to do away with uh, people destroying the water bodies in our country. There is also another statistic that says that about 700 million people globally could be displaced by intense water scarcity by 2030. Those who are living in the cities, in the developed world, may have it very difficult to understand the situation of water. Because you just wake up in the morning, you go to your water tap, you get water, and you finish. However, we from the developing countries are facing the reality 
of water shortages. It also said that about 159 million people collect their drinking water from surface water, such as the streams. And there are some countries that are struggling with livestock. For example, cow, to get water from the same stream. Water is life. And I think before we can end hunger and have food security or food sufficiency, we need to think about how we can protect our water bodies. Use water wisely. And remember that water is life. And it's a great gift from God to us humankind. I recommended to you that we have responsibility to take care of water. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Father Bernard, for this um, uh, presentation. And I think that uh, if there is any chance that maybe political figures who are present here and together with churches and religious communities, maybe there could be some letter to the government uh, in, uh, in order to help you to create solidarity for the protection of the water resources in your country. Because uh, I think that uh, we need to be solidar to one another one another, I mean, when we come to these issues uh, that, uh, of water, because it is fundamental human right that uh, for everybody. Okay, and uh, now uh, with 15, 20 minutes left, uh, we open the floor. So if you would have a question, please feel free to take the floor. Yes, please. I wanted just very quickly, lest the conversation go in a different direction, to respond for a moment to something that Dineshji had said about the use of water for the meat production, is that actually the vast majority of water that goes into meat is not due to the transport, but it's actually due to the fact that the animal, the cow, the chicken, the pig, lives for many, many years before we kill it for food. And during those years, consumes its own food. So the water is used to grow the wheat, the corn, the soy, the rice that is fed to the animals. The animals also drink water. The animals are bathed in water. When the animals are killed, without getting too grotesque, you can imagine that with their muscles or whatever it is that their fat that we eat is mixed a lot of blood. There's also even urine and feces from when the animal is killed, which is how you get bacteria infections sometimes from meat. And so the amount of water that has to be used to separate blood, urine, feces from the meat that we, that we eat is also an extraordinary amount of water. So that's actually where the water goes into the meat production. Thank you for this uh, explanation. So uh, we open the floor. Uh, Jonathan. Um, yes. Uh, first of all, thank you all for your excellent presentations. Um, and uh, I would like to stress one point that was mentioned by Professor Bernard, which was the connection between mining and the destruction of water, because it's a very serious problem. 
recently, for instance, in, in Brazil, uh, there were in, in the time period of three years, two major accidents uh, concerning dams of um, mining residue that, uh, that broke and then uh, the residues went to the waters and then the waters had all kinds of lead and iron and things like that. And that is terrible for the environment, for the health of the people, for the quality of, of water. And there is also a connection between that and corruption because many of those mining companies, they bribe uh, the authorities so that they, they don't supervise, they, they, and so I think we, we should really take seriously uh, that problem because, uh, you know, there are many Western um, mining big corporations that are mining everywhere and, and also producing a terrible impact uh, in, in many countries, leaving people without water, without health, without a good environment, and so uh, I think we should, as citizens, pay attention to, to that. Thank you. Uh, any other question? Uh, gentleman. Here. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my question is addressed to Mr. Suna. Uh, uh, water as the most fundamental human rights, uh, I tend to agree, because it's God-given. But um, in the year 2000, when the vision of water for the 21st century was presented to the world community, the biggest debating point is exactly this. Um, the structure of finance has not been changed in any drastic way from that time. At that time, the estimate for investment need for any decent provision of water for the world community was about $200 billion a year. Whereas at that time, the total ODA available in the world was just about $50 billion. Four times of the totality of ODA was required to make our whole world population survivable. At that time, the only money available was in the private sector. And this structure is the same now. And for the private sector, unless the investment brings about more or less the same level of investment for investors. No one will invest. So what happens? For all the efforts we want to pursue, 
we need money. And if we try and persuade the private sector to invest, which is the only money available, they won't do it for free. What would be your response to that? Yes, please. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a very valid uh, question. And uh, when I mentioned two things, uh, water must be uh, recognized as a human right. We have been saying this before. And uh, when we were saying this, uh, the CEO of Nestle, uh, Peter Brabeck, uh, you were mentioning yesterday also about him, he went on record saying that water is such a precious commodity, it must not become a human right, otherwise there will be abuses. Mm. And guess what? Nestle is world's largest bottled water manufacturer. And that's why the, if it is a human right, then governments would be somehow be responsible or um, uh, somehow they have to provide the, these basic necessities of life which has been the monopoly of few uh, people, those who were in the bottled water industry. But the private companies, when we say privatizing of, bottle, uh, privatizing of water, it's not the bottled water industry we're talking about. We're talking about uh, Suez, like that kind of giant companies who basically privatize utilities. Uh, London, for example, the water Margaret Thatcher uh, privatized its water since 1980s. And till today, it is a topic of debate that um, Jeremy Corbyn is asking to re-municipalize. There are 200 cities and uh, corporations around the world which have now uh, already become, uh, the cities have become re-municipalized from being privatized. So privatization will definitely improve the services. They have the money. But as you rightly said, if there is no profit, private corporations would not invest. Something as basic as a life-sustaining resource like water, if we leave it to the profit-making corporations alone, then only the rich and those who could afford something like this $18 a bottle would be able to access. And therefore, human rights has five normative contents. And one is accessibility, another one is sufficiency, number three is safety, number four is about acceptability of the community, and number five and most important is affordability. And people must be able to aff afford. And if a government cannot provide as basic service like this, like water, there's money. Politicians, uh, we talked about corruption in the morning. There is money available in the corporate uh, government uh, sector, but that needs to be tapped and this should be made accountable. And uh, private corporations are more than welcome for innovation and investment, but not for cutting corners, making profits at the cost of the poor. That is our ethical and moral uh, standpoint. Thank you so much. W would you like to comment? Yes, uh, Sadavi and Paro Bernard. I just wanted to say also that along with that, whenever you come up with any policy, whether it's a judicial policy or a government policy or a financial policy, you have to look at the precedent you're setting. And the idea of having that sort of privatization of water that is not separate from the government's 
responsibility to provide clean water for its people leads us into a situation where tomorrow, are we going to privatize air? Are we going to privatize soil? I mean, there's, there's cities in the world already today, and we're on track for there to be even more of them tomorrow, in which you can't breathe the air. I mean, I know, think about Delhi, for example. If suddenly the government said, well, you know, you know we're just going to privatize the air here, and if you can afford to buy yourself some clean air, go right ahead, but it's not our responsibility, where, where would we be? In a situation where 99 point something percent of the people die of lung cancer and 0. 0.00 something percent of the people who have the money to buy their own air are able to, to live. And then five years later, it's the soil. So our soil is toxic because our water is toxic because our rivers are toxic and so our soil has become toxic. And so again, are we in a situation where we're gonna privatize it? So I always think about that slippery slope precedent setting and it worries me. I would take it even a step further. The fact that organic food is more expensive than non-organic food worries me. I realize at this moment, there's not a lot that we can do about it. But in terms of policy, I actually think that's a human rights violation. I think the fact, the fact that you have to pay more for food that isn't laden with toxins, that you don't have an inalienable right to food that's not toxic, that feels to me like a human rights violation, that only people who have enough of a luxury to shop at places like Whole Foods and buy apples that are four times the cost of non-organic apples should have access to healthy food. That really worries me. And so I actually would go in the, in the other direction of saying it's not that you can't do special things with your water. I mean, there's all sorts of incredible research these days that People keep coming to us with this great research of all kinds of things with water. I won't waste time now talking about that. But yeah, sure, if people want to pay $9 a bottle for water that's of a certain you know, alkalinity or a water that is what they're now calling cohesive and coherent instead of chaotic, let them do it. But for clean water, that has to be a human right, and it therefore has to be something that every government that even pretends to care about human rights violations must provide its people. Father Bernard? Yeah, well, for, I, I, I don't know whether it's acceptable or not, but I am always thinking about our presidents around the world. Uh, what is their budget? for militarization. How much money are we spending to buy guns and kill ourselves? So as we said, the money is there. If the, the presidents will prioritize themselves and take care of the citizens, I think they can make budget for that. I always ask these questions. I asked in the FM uh, food organization uh, meeting, and they were very angry with me. What is the budget allocation for militarization in this world? How much is one gun, AK-47, how much does it cost? And how much can we budget to preserve water 
for people to drink. So I think it's a matter of priority. And many governments don't have the political will to do something. They follow what they want to do. And they have money to buy something good for their people. And we underground are always, the grassroots people are the one suffering. So I think the money is there, officer. The money is there. But how can they prioritize it? Let them limit the budget for militarization. We are not at war. We can save ourselves. We need food to eat and sleep. Even the government, the president, the prime minister, the last thing they will do in their life is to drink water and eat and sleep. Thank you so much to three of you. Is there any other last question or comment? We have still two, three minutes. If not, I would suggest that we give a round of applause to our three speakers for wonderful presentations and great input. Thank you so much. <laughs>